0: Welcome to the Women of TBC podcast. You'll hear content from women's Bible studies and other women's events. For more information, visit timblebiblechurch.org. Okay, um, I thought about not having a song of worship today, but I really think we need one. I think we need to rest. We need to settle our minds. And I thought, I thought, we're going to need something peppy. After talking about Ecclesiastes, we're going to need a really great awesome peppy worship song. And and I already had one picked out. And then yesterday I was driving in and I heard the perfect song and it's not peppy at all. (laughs) It's really slow. It's real sad, but it's not sad. It's hopeful. And it's, uh, so it's an old hymn, but I think it gives the perfect perspective. It's like the person who wrote this hymn was just like Solomon wrestling with these things and decided, no, I'm not going to end up on that conclusion that life is meaningless. I'm going to end up on another conclusion, which is to abide in Christ. So this is an old hymn. It's called Abide With Me, but it's, I think it'll mean something different. All of the verses really speak to the things that we just talked about in Ecclesiastes. So let's stand up. We're going, to, we're going to say our verse together and then sing this together. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths.
1: Abide with me, fast falls the even tide, the darkness deep. With me abide when other helpers fail and comforts flee help of the helpless soul God and strength can be
0: Oh, God, we thank you so much that you abide with us through all of these challenges of this life, through all of the things that we don't understand, uh, all the things that Solomon wrestled with. God, we know that we wrestle with it, too, and we trust you together. We are just leaning together all of our weight on you in faith. Would you help us to trust you more and more and more together? We love you, we ask you to, to speak to us as we try to talk about uh, this book in your word today. Uh, give, give us wisdom to understand, give us hearts um, to seek to change through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we, we just uh, thank you Lord for what you will teach us in Jesus name, amen. All right, you guys can be seated. Well, I wanna start with a simple question this morning. Does life have meaning? And Whether you're asking this question or not, our culture is in the business of answering it for you. Your life will have meaning if you have a winning football team to follow. Your life will have meaning if you have a very flexible job and you have plenty of time for self-care. Your life will have meaning if your kids play the right sports or if they attend the right schools, and on and on and on it goes. Not to mention all the money that you're going to need to have all the stuff that you are going to have to have in order to have a meaningful life, like phones or laptops or cars or a nice house or a vacation home or so much more. But do any of these things really answer this question? I don't think so. I love this quote from Jim Carrey. He said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they would see that it wasn't the answer to anything. Isn't that true and good? Well, the book of Ecclesiastes sets out to wrestle with this same question. Does life have meaning under the sun? We learned in our homework that the author of the book and the preacher that he's quoting throughout the book are two different people. The author introduces the preacher in chapter 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, I believe that this preacher is Solomon. Nancy said that, you know, it's, it's debatable. But I really think it is Solomon, David's son, the king of a united Israel, after he had lived a lot of life under the sun. He's the same guy who wrote Proverbs Last week, but now later in his life, he seems very hardened by the world and its pursuits, and so I think God wants us to consider Proverbs and Ecclesiastes together as a way to understand truly God's God's wisdom. So, chapters one through twelve, verse eight, are going to record the speech and the philosophizing of this preacher king, but then the author is going to make some very very clear conclusions in chapter twelve, verses nine through 14. And so I want us to consider both perspectives this morning. Now Solomon's speech is depressing at best. I think we learned that. But I think that its central message can give us a lot of hope. I think it's found in chapter 3 verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time and has put eternity into man's hearts yet so that he cannot find out what God has done. From beginning to end. So Solomon knows that he's drawn to goodness and beauty and wisdom in this world and yet in his humanness he can't fully understand God and so he's decided that obviously it must be meaningless. And I think we can resonate with him here because I think we too are moved by beauty in so many different forms. I know I am. I just I am moved to sit and listen to a beautiful piece of music. I am moved when I sit in a garden, because I cannot garden worth a hoot. So when I look around and I see somebody who can create all these beautiful flowers, and I hear the beauty of the bird song when I sit in that garden, I just feel like God is whispering to me some kind of note of transcendence. There's something more that you were created for, Amy. There's something eternal here. And yet, as we steadily age and we experience life under the sun, We contend with all the frustrations of the world that Solomon did. Failure, poverty, disappointment, rejection, getting old. And we just struggle like he did to understand what is the point of it all. We know that life on this earth is hard, plain and simple. I think Solomon just gets stuck there. So we see in his view, 38 times he says that life is what? meaningless. Sometimes he uses the word utterly meaningless. I can't get any more meaningless. Some translations will translate that word to say all is vanity, which means beauty that's just fading away. But the Hebrew word that's translated for both of those terms is the word hevel, and it can literally be translated a vapor or smoke, something that you see, but it just Slips away, it just slips through your fingers. Just when you think you're in control of it, you're not. Your life is like a vapor. So Solomon uses this rhetorical kind of form in his speech, very similar to Romans, which we will talk about um, in the spring. But he is answering a bunch of questions in his head as as he's laying out this speech for us in Ecclesiastes. So we're gonna follow that pattern a little bit. We can't cover it all but similar to how Nancy did in the teaching chapter. We're going to think about the questions he's trying to answer. So the first question, is anything predictable? And here we start with a resounding yes. He he believes that there are some things that are predictable. So he bookends his argument, the beginning and at the end, with two things you can be sure of. The first one is the progression of time. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop time from marching on in a very predictable pattern. There's actually nothing new about it. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. And then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, he gives this really interesting little soliloquy that's been put to songs. Quite often, he says, there is a certain monotony and rhythm to life, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to weep and laugh, mourn and dance, seek and lose, keep silent and speak, love and hate, a time for war and a time for peace, and on and on it goes. So even though God does not exist in time and space, his fallen creation is subject to it and it's in a steady process of decay and renewal. The Earth predictably orbits the sun every 365.25 days, and humans, as much as we think we can, have no control over this. Well, what else can we be sure of? Another really encouraging one, death. Solomon reminds us that we can be sure that this earthly body we live in is going to die. So look at the end of his argument. Chapter 11, verse 8. He says, So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Speaking of death there. And then in 12, verse 1, he starts, Remember the Creator in the days of your youth. That sounds great. But then he says, before the evil days come, and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. And then I find it so humorous how he describes these aging years. These are years before your eyes go bad, before your grinders, which means teeth, can't chew anymore. He says, when you rise as early as the sound of the birds, but you can't hear them actually singing. (laughs) Doesn't this accurately describe aging? And then look at chapter 12, verse seven. Remember him, your creator, before the dust returns to the same place it came from, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. In other words, before you're dead. Wow, what encouragement for us this morning. But he's right. In a broken world, death comes to all. That was part of the curse of sin. But as Christ's followers, we don't fear it like the world around us. We face it with confidence and hope, and the one who defeated it, and the one who is making all things new. Solomon does not appear to be thinking about the Messiah to come. So since all he can count on is getting old and dying, he's going to ask some more tough questions about this futile life under the sun. Let's look at the first one. Does anything satisfy And I want us to consider knowledge. Isn't there just another book I can read to find satisfaction? It's kind of what this question is asking. Well, Solomon had something to say about it in Proverbs, and I want to compare and contrast that to Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs 8.10, he said, Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. But now, after he's lived a long time, in Ecclesiastes 1.18, he says, With much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. And then he says in 8, chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know, he can't find it out. So Solomon is is saying that knowledge doesn't satisfy, because in the end, you can know a lot, but you just can't understand all of the working of God. With or without all of this earthly knowledge, you're going to experience the progression of time and death in the exact same way. So you'll be just as dead with a PhD as you are with a GED, right? Well, what about wealth? Surely wealth is something to, to satisfy me. And he said back in Proverbs 10, 15, a rich man's wealth is a strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. But then in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 12, I'm going to paraphrase some of it. Oh, I'm sorry, 10 through 12. That's right. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man will not let him sleep. So Solomon is saying what I think Jim Carrey was saying. I wish you could all have riches and wealth to realize, like I have, that they just don't satisfy you. You think they will, but you just want more. It's a temporary joy. And I want you to just think about the people who you look out in this world and think that they have it all together, or they have it all. They have the same troubles that you do, but probably a lot more. You probably sleep a lot better than they do, according to Ecclesiastes. Well, the next question, is there anything gained? Surely something can be gained by our work under the sun. Solomon said in Proverbs 28, 19, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So he's saying, work hard and you will see something from it. Remember the ant? He really advocated for that queen. And yet in Ecclesiastes 2, 18 to 24, he says, So I turned about and I gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This is also vanity and a great evil. So yes, work is good, it provides food, but it's not a guarantee that you will have what you need. Sometimes life is just very unfair. And in the end, all that you gain offers no lasting purpose. Nothing is ever enough. It's a chasing after the wind. Now, this doesn't mean that work itself isn't part of the purpose of life. We were made to work. We were made to be productive workers as God's image bearers. He says that over and over, and he says it in chapter 9, verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. However, expecting, always expecting gain from your work or that others who don't work as hard as you won't prosper is just vanity. That's not how this broken world works. Oftentimes, it's just not fair. Okay, well, that's depressing. So surely there's some comfort out there. Isn't there something that can take the edge off all that sadness? I mean, we're certainly good at trying to find it, aren't we? And Solomon was no different. He said that he sought pleasure. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. If you want to read this, I'm, I'm going to paraphrase it, bit. I mean, believe me, he's saying all of these things that he tried. He says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then he starts to explain all the things that he tried. Now, some of these are really good things, but he just took them way too far. Here's a list. He tried wine, he tried folly, he tried big houses, he tried great vineyards, gardens that were beautiful, parks full of fruit trees. Man, that sounds nice. Swimming pools, awesome. Forests, male and female slaves, lots of herds, lots of flocks, silver, gold, singers, concubines. Remember the 700 wives weren't enough, so he added 300 concubines to try to satisfy his sexual needs. And then look at verse 10. This is his conclusion about it. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. But then he said in verse 11, he concluded that after all of this, there was nothing, nothing to be gained from it under the sun, no lasting comfort. I get the temptation, don't you? I mean, we all have our go-to comforts. Mine are coffee and books and TV. I mean, I just, I just need those things. But I, and those, those things aren't always wrong. But for me to put my trust and my confidence and things like that to provide me lasting comfort is foolishness. They're never going to give me the peace and the security that I'm ultimately looking for. Well, lest we think that all of Solomon's conclusions were depressing— Aren't you glad to know that he asked in his head, is there any hope? And even though he's very much despairing, he knows that there's something to hope in. He says that the only hope there is, is to fear God. He repeats this several times. I want us to just read these together. Chapter three, verse 14, he said, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear. Before him, chapter 5 verse 1 guard your steps when you go into the house of god to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know that they are doing evil and then in verse 7 for when dreams increase and words grow many there is vanity but god is the one that you must fear and then chapter 8 verse 12 though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. So what kind of fear are we talking about here? I think it's the same fear that Job recognized, that awe and respect for God and his ways, even when they are just so beyond our understanding. And it leads us to Jesus, the one who came and lived among us, who understands our struggles who died so that we could die to our sin, who rose again so that we could be revived to spiritual life, the one who lives to shepherd us and lead us home. So a fear of God the Son produces a heart of gratitude and love. And this kind of fear leads us to trust a good and merciful Father. I love the line in that song we sang a few weeks ago that Patty um, asked us to sing Amazing Grace Remember that line, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and the same grace that all my fears relieved.'" So it's so cool. It's awe-inspiring yet comforting fear that assures us that God is trustworthy, that we can trust him with all of our heart. And then number two, you just need to accept or make peace with the fact that your life is a vapor, that you're, really not in control of anything. But God is in control of everything, and so we can rest in him. And he's in the business of redeeming all things, redeeming the futility and making it new. Bonnie helped us to see this so beautifully in her talk a few weeks ago. Life is hard and suffering is sure, but none of it, she said, is wasted by God. Well, what about joy? Isn't there anything that we can enjoy in this life? And Ecclesiastes says yes. Even Solomon says yes. He knows that God is a good father who knows how to give good things. And so he encouraged us us in his speech um, to enjoy some things that I think point us very specifically to Jesus. So let's look at these things that Solomon found great. The first one, friendship. One of the most encouraging passages in this book, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So we need other people, especially others who are following Christ, to lift us up in this world. Friends to share life with really make life bearable. They share our joys and they share our sorrows. This matters even to a Debbie Downer like Solomon. So think about Eeyore in the Hundred Acre Wood. Even he had friends. Even he needed friends. My friends bring so much joy and value to my life. I thank God so much for friends. Well the next thing he and he said it was good is feasting. Who doesn't love a good feast especially as we are approaching Thanksgiving Look at chapter 9 verse 7. he said, "Go eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. So feasting makes life so sweet Now not all day, every day, but the special meals, the special feasts with the ones that you, Love, or those are the memories that you hold on to forever. Remember the Levitical law that the Israelites lived under? It mandated a feast schedule throughout the year to celebrate and to remember God's goodness. So as Christians, we are to do the same. We are to rejoice and be glad and remember the goodness of God. And then finally, he says family. Chapter 9, verse 9. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life and he has get, that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. And the idea here is to enjoy life with the ones you love, even if you're not married or you don't have physical children. Life is sweeter with family and with friends who become family to you. Well, I think the coolest thing about this list, and this was like a huge epiphany for me when I was studying this, is that all of those things point us to Jesus Hope and joy in Jesus. Because you know what? Jesus called us his friends. He said, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. John fifteen fifteen. So no matter how forsaken you may feel in this life, you will always have a friend in Jesus. And then Jesus has prepared a really great feast for us. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup of wine. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And Jesus says that we eat this together in his kingdom every time we partake. And we proclaim his death until he comes again. What a beautiful feast. And we're going to engage in it together in just a couple of weeks. And then, Jesus has made us his bride. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So no matter your earthly situation, you will enjoy this marriage forever Jesus also called us his family. We're going to study this in depth, but Romans 8:15 through 17 says, For you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we are, we are part of the family of God through Christ. That's just so amazing to me. Well, we have considered life according to the preacher, Solomon. Now let's see what life means according to the author. In chapter 12, we see the conclusion of the narrator. He starts in verses, verses 9 and 10 By giving some props to Solomon, he says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So he he commends him. But he he tells his son, But you don't need to go seeking after all of the wisdom of the world. It's going to be empty. You're going to find that meaningless. But there's one thing that matters, he says. He says, In verse 13, the one thing that matters to him is to fear God and to keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So what does the fear of God produce in us in light of the grace and mercy we have received in Christ? Well, 2 Corinthians has something to say about that. 2 Corinthians 5.11 says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It goes on in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, your virgin might say compels us. Because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ together compels us, controls us. Friends, we are already dead. We're already dead to our earthly selves. We are alive by the Spirit, and we will live forever by the Spirit. And then he goes back to to verse 14. He says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every single thing, whether good or evil. And this begs the question, okay, well then how will God judge the sins of the world? The full weight of that judgment we know he took upon himself. Jesus Christ took it all. Paul describes it this way in Romans. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified. His judgment poured out freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. And then in verse 26, he says why. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So God judges the world by Jesus, period. You either receive that mercy and grace so that you can find true joy in this miserable life, or you choose to go your own way, and you try to hold on to all those meaningless pursuits, and you find them just as empty as Solomon did. So we'll close by asking a few more questions today. Is life fair? Absolutely not. Do bad things happen that are unexplainable? Yes, they do. Is life confusing and often difficult to understand? Yes. Sometimes I think it feels like we are just driving around in the darkness. We just can't quite see the road in front of us and I want to ask you a question this morning. What would you rather have in this situation, driving around in the dark? Would you rather have a detailed map that gives you every inch of detail about the topography of the, of the area that you're driving in? Or would you rather have someone sitting in the driver's seat who knows the way and can lead you home? We think that we want all the answers about life, but maybe we just need to trust the person who's chosen to die for us and who resides in us by his spirit and who is leading us and guiding us to the end. So back to our original question, does life have meaning? Yes. Jesus and his love will endure forever. Jesus satisfies. Jesus gives us hope beyond the grave. We have a secure inheritance in him. He enables us to draw near to God, to know and to be known forever And Jesus said this for us when he prayed in the garden. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So let's pray together. God, we are so thankful that you are knowable to us by your Son. Jesus, we are so thankful that you would not consider equality with God something to hold on to, but take the form of a servant for us to come and live in this world, to face all of its meaningless challenges, and to overcome them in every way, to give us your righteousness. Jesus is such a gift. Thank you. Thank you, Spirit, for empowering us, enabling us to find joy in this life, joy in friendship, joy in feasting, joy in our family. God, thank you so much for this life that you have given us. Would you help us to enjoy it today, to just find happiness today, and to be confident in the hope that we have secure and eternal in you. So thank you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name.